Hello, heroes. I'm Hannah Schaefer. And I'm Evan Rowland. Welcome to Design Doc. This week we're back in Argyle, a kingdom sworn to follow in the footsteps of its ancestors and their traditions, but divided by the question, with so many different ancestors, whose traditions were right? Questlandia tells stories of kingdoms in trouble, often by their own doing. The game follows people in upside-down fantasy worlds trying to accomplish something big and personal while their world falls to pieces around them. The story of Argyle has yet to be told. How do we make sure that the story hits the arc we're aiming for? Where do we restrict the players, and where do we set them free? In Questlandia 2, you've already seen us experiment with the idea of player-created character archetypes. That was something totally new, and so far, it's worked great for the game. It's where we got some of our favorite parts of Argyle. The puppeteers, the beasts of burden, and the tourist trappers always cheerfully willing to lead a lost pilgrim along the perilous final leg of the voyage to the orbiting Lightbringer. This week, we started working on the scene structure for the game. In the original Questlandia, you started every scene by deciding where you were, who you were with, and coming up with a scene goal to pursue. In the sequel, for campaign play, we wanted a wider variety of scene types. Could the techniques we've tried in our other games work for Questlandia? In our most recent RPG, Damn the Man Save the Music, you're given a choice of three types of scenes at the start of your turn. You can choose to double down on a task that your boss assigned to you in your record store, you can shoot for your goal, or you can take a moment to heal a relationship with your friend. So we started to adapt those scene ideas to Questlandia 2, and we were immediately hit with the thought, if player-generated character archetypes worked so well, what about player-generated scene types? We drafted up the idea and brought it to our playtesters. Tentatively, they gave it a shot. They came up with two scene types unique to the world of Argyle, both wildly different from anything we expected. This was something new, and it was exciting. And that's as far as we got before our playtesting session exploded into questions and confusion. Were the scenes supposed to be like this? What does scene type even mean? What if the scene types overlap and you can do the same thing while trying to accomplish your goal and also doing some other type of scene? So there's a lot of thinking to do before this idea becomes a functional mechanic. We didn't have the answers then, but maybe by the end of this episode, we'll be a little bit closer. So we've now done two playtests since the, our last episode. Yep. We're a little bit behind on the recording of the episodes. We're getting back into the swing of things. <laughs> I think we actually are, though. Mm -hmm. Like, just the fact that we've had two playtests in the course of a month is pretty good. And we have a bunch more scheduled. We do. So it's going to start accelerating. Uh, so we're back in Argyle. Do we want to just give a quick recap of the setting for folks? So, in a previous episode, we talked about how our playtesters designed the world of Argyle. 
They created this kingdom. They mapped it out. It is a kingdom of people obsessed with trying to find the ways of their ancestors and to recreate them. But there's a lot of disagreement about how their ancestors actually lived. Right now, there are two main ideologies about what the ancestors were up to. They call themselves the right and the left. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't really know what they believe in, actually. No. We're going to find that over time, but we just know that the right is sort of the dominant ideology. And the left has been sort of suppressed. Um, And then there's also this kind of like side plot uh, of these people who live in sort of like in, you know, in, what is it when it's, when you live in exile within the kingdom? Then it's not exile. It's like, there's a difference. It's just forced servitude. Yes. Uh, Slavery is another word for it Mm -hmm. um, within the kingdom. And they are, they are the beasts of burden and they are responsible for like harvesting by like licking this moss that grows on rocks. And we don't know what the moss does, but we know that it's somehow sort of integral to the function and the of this society. So they're moss lickers. Yeah. And then there's also this thing called the Lightbringer. The Lightbringer is some kind of massive orbital structure that has taken on a holy significance for the people of this world. It seems like they didn't actually build it, but they are able to travel to it and control it to some extent. It it focuses the sunlight and beams light down on the surface in some way. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about scene framing and what it was like to come up with this idea of rather than giving players like, you know, here are the types of scenes. Here's a list of the types of scenes you can do in Questlandia 2 in this game specifically, like in, you know, in Night Witches, there's like these day scenes and night scenes, and you can do different things depending on uh, what time of day it is, and you have different options in those scenes. We came up with a few kind of default scenes, and then we were like, well, coming up with character archetypes works so well when the players had some guidance around it. What if they can come up with scene types too? Mm -hmm. So we provided a framework. People were very... uh, is trepidatious is that a word it's a word it's it's a a (laughs) they had trepidation yes um there were a lot of questions like what do you mean by scene type what am i allowed to say here um but we ended up coming up with them so do you want to say do you want to describe the first one so we tried a rough idea for a process yeah what was i don't even remember creating these which was dividing up the elements of them as uh what the scene is called what you do in this scene and what might result from it. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. And then different people answer each of those questions in turn. So for the first scene, somebody said, it is a pilgrimage. And someone else said, this is one where people are traveling to the Lightbringer. And the result is that you're closer to the Lightbringer. (laughs) And then, you know, there were these questions after that of like, oh, well, does that mean like spatially closer or spiritually closer? And we're like... Who knows? Ooh, oh, we're going to have to find out. Get in our head. <laughs> uh, so that one worked out, and that one felt pretty smooth. Then the next one was given the title Procedure. <laughs> well, I think it was sort of my turn to come up with something. And I was like, I can't think of any scene type. I Sam actually oh, came did up Sam? with that name. Wow, did yeah. I really just take... I just took some... I think that I just like imagined 
that in the like in the past, I, like I like John Malkovich myself. <laughs> <laughs> like I imagine that my face is on everybody at the table. <laughs> <laughs> there was Sama and Heaven and Joshanna, and- <laughs> Joshuanna. Yes. <laughs> I really wasn't the one who said it. I'm sorry to Malkovich call you out. (laughs) (laughs) I've just been Malkovich shamed. Okay. Okay. So So somebody, Sam, not me, Sama, said procedure. And it's like, hmm, is this a stress test of this idea? (laughs) That's That's quite a name for a scene type. But the action of the scene decided by somebody else. Was me. Did I say the action? I think it was. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe. I think it was you, All right, yeah. So somewhere I knew. So I think I was... you said the contents of it, uh, the, the true Hannah Schaefer. Yes. And then I said a procedure in which an object is repaired or mended. And so what results from that? You might think something gets fixed. Something gets fixed. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the chosen outcome of a procedure scene was that an object becomes sentient. And depending on how your scene goes, it might be your friend. And that was the that was the first time where I was like, whoa, this if we could find a way to really make these rules clear, this could really work for making very Questlandia style scenes. Because all that had been in my head was like, you mend an object, the result is that it's mended. Yeah. I couldn't think of any other possible outcome for that scene and so then it seemed pointless to sort of have these distinctions and you know like you travel to the light bringer you get closer to the light bringer but that was a really cool response so before we get into too much detail about the custom scene types let's zoom out and talk about scene types as a whole and to begin with let's just figure out what we're what we're even defining here. What is a scene framing? What's a scene type? Good question. Uh, So, I mean, there's different ways to do this in a role-playing game. The way that Questlandia 1 did this and the way that some role-playing games do this are that, like, your character specifically has a scene. Like, you are the spotlight of the scene and other characters can enter in and out, but the understanding is that, you know, you were sort of the, the protagonist of the scene. Other role play. I don't know. I haven't played that many role playing games. I feel like scene framing is something that you know, in a very traditional game, like a D and D game, it's something that the that the game master is doing, you know, on their own. It doesn't necessarily need any special rules. Yeah, it's the game master saying, "Okay, let's talk about the tavern. We're gonna have a conversation with the person who owns it. He wants your coin." You want information. Let's hash it out. We'll We're have a conversation. Step back and have a campfire scene where we all, you know, talk after the battle today. Yeah. Or I'm gonna jump cut to, you know, a bunch of goblins scheming in a lair. And none of your characters know about that right now. But we're just gonna take a glance. Or we'll have a dream sequence. Whatever. These are all scene framings. The GM has a, a lot of freedom in those games to just do it. And with a game with a game master, any rules that you put in for scene framing are kind of just like guided support for that right it's like it's like as a game master you can do anything here are just some ideas and structures that might help you decide it gets a little different when there isn't a game master 
because that role, it's, it's suddenly unclear who has the power to frame a scene. Mm-hmm. It's not always fun to have total power to frame your own scene. Total openness. Just be like, hey, do whatever you want. And if you're playing the game as a, you know, a protagonist, as a main character, you probably don't feel free to say, okay, for my scene, I want to zoom in on some goblins 10 miles away having a conversation. So we wanted to come up with some rules to make those kinds of scenes possible, like a broader variety. So let's start with what we decided with Questlandia 1, how to tackle that issue. Do you want to recap what those rules looked like? I'll try my best to remember. Um, My memory is that in Questlandia 1, you have this big goal. Your goal is like, I want to assassinate the king by the end of the game. And in each of your scenes, you only have three scenes that are like your spotlight scenes. You say something, you say like a sort of mini step towards working on that goal. Like, what are you doing this scene to work to accomplish your goal? Well, I'm like breaking into the king's bed chambers. And then you say, you just say, you know, where you are, what you're doing and who you're with. But whatever you're doing has to kind of be in service of your goal. That's what I remember. Mm-hmm. So I guess that would sort of technically make the scene framing. It was like, if that was a type of scene, every scene is like a goal scene. Yeah, everyone is sort of making progress towards your character's goal. There was also a little bit of a mechanical encouragement to bring other players into your scene. You'd get bonuses if you tied them in and got them working towards your goal as well. Those scenes worked really well to give a sense of momentum towards achieving your goal and fulfilling the story arc. When we did our very first playtest of Questlandia 2 with a much more open scene structure, we immediately saw some benefits to that in having scenes that were slower paced, that were more intimate, that were more focused on just character interactions, and made more space for just exploring the world in a deep level. So we wanted to make sure that for the Questlandia 2, we were creating a space for those kinds of moments. So when we sat down to actually construct the rules for scene framing here, we started by looking at what we did with Norlandia and what we did with Damn the Man and figuring out if there was any, any successes from those games that we could carry forward. Yeah, so Damn the Man I already mentioned in the intro. Uh, you had, it's another one-shot game. You have three types of scenes, or you can, you have sort of like three, well, three scene framings. You can say that you are taking a moment to heal a relationship with a friend and have this more relationship-focused scene. You can double down on the task that your boss assigned to you, which gives you bonuses to your dice when you go to roll, Or you can try to shoot for your goal where you have to divide your energy uh, between uh, trying to get the task done that your boss assigned to you and trying to simultaneously confess your crush or find the lost cat or pay back a debt or whatever this goal was that you set out to accomplish at the beginning of the game. So, I mean, Damn the Man is a really like, it's it's very, there's a lot of structure. Mm -hmm. Like it's pretty narrow in its funnel. Yeah, it has a narrow scope. That's part of what what works about the game. 
Uh, Noirlandia, I don't actually really remember what the scene framing is. I think it's connected to, like, spatially to, to districts. Yeah, you're choosing, you're choosing what you want to investigate, and it's leading you to different parts of the city. It also has a kind of regimented structure where your scene will always end with an investigation, and in the middle, you'll overcome or try to overcome some kind of obstacle or challenge in your way. And how you deal with that obstacle will impact your investigation at the end of your scene. Oh, yes. So you have these sort of like these mini roles during the scene and then these larger roles at the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as usual, it was a few hours before the playtest and we needed to pull something together. We decided we wanted to try to take the damn the man approach of having specific scene structures that you're choosing between and use that as our first draft of Quislandia 2's scene framing. But it, it was immediately kind of tricky because Damn the Man is so narrow. So it wasn't that hard to, I mean, even with Damn the Man, it was kind of hard for us to finally settle on those three different scene types. But like, yeah. there's only so many things you can do in a game that takes place over the course of a few hours in where you almost never leave your record store in 1994. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's. It, it has three types, and three is kind of a magic number. Three is a good number of things to choose between, so it's not overwhelming. But at the same time, we wanted... This is a campaign game. You're playing this for possibly months at a time. We wanted more variety than just three. And so we started brainstorming what kind of scenes we'd want. We realized that, you know... There's lots of scene types that are related to the archetypes that we've been discussing that we were interested in. You know, an ingredient taster archetype, finding special ingredients or cooking something up, or an investigator investigating, or, you know, whatever. Everybody having their own unique style to bring to the table is really nice. And once you start thinking about special scene types that are available to single archetypes, it makes sense to expand that idea to the world itself. That the world you're exploring would have some special scene types that would only be available while you're exploring this world and that represent how people do things in this world. And so then there's one more level to think about. The level of, you know, the overall story of the game. The idea that there are some scene types that you'd want to take with you throughout the whole game, the whole campaign. When we were thinking about those, we came up with a going-for-your-goal kind of scene that, you know, characters striving to achieve what they want would be a theme to carry through the whole game. We came up with the idea for a scene for exploring the worlds and understanding them better. Because that kind of investigation is, you know, integral to the theme. And finally, we're, we're playing around with an idea of a kind of scene that's about entering or exiting these worlds. That one was something we haven't even playtested yet. We've just started the drafting of it. But the idea is that this would be a way to wake yourself up from the dream, from the world that you're exploring, to go back to the junk poet level or to enter a world in the first place. 
So each of these, I mean, this was like a long, you just described a lot of different types of scenes, but we kind of clustered them into three groups, like archetype scenes, world scenes, and like book or story scenes, as if like, you know, this, as if a story has a will of its own and wants to see certain types of scenes, uh, this very sort of sword and sorcery type of, I don't know, will of objects direction. I don't know if these are good ideas. Uh, I was immediately stressed about it because, like, you know, even though it's sort of three scene framings, within that we actually listed quite a few types of scenes. And I was like, well, that means, you know, players, before you go into your scene, are potentially going to be looking at, like, nine or more options of things you can do. Mm -hmm. That felt kind of like, whoa. Yeah, you don't want it to be too overwhelming. And so the question has been whether there's a way to organize these scene types so that they are not an overwhelming choice. They're simple and quick to choose between, but still, you know, full of different flavors and varieties and ways to play. And a big goal with the, you know, the archetype, the personal kinds of scenes and the world scenes is that those would be changing often. You'd have like, you know, different ways to play the game being developed as you go. And I kind of liked that also because it opened up this idea where, you know, when you create your first, like you create this pilgrimage scene and you create this procedure scene and then you're like, well, those were the first scenes we created. We have like a better grasp on our world and the game. Um, You know, it is okay to throw those scene types out and and invent new ones. Those scenes also open the door to a conversation about, well, sort of framing versus type or content versus, I don't know. I don't know what the words are, but like basically the idea is when you create a scene, are you creating the rules for the players and how they play this scene? Or are you creating a setting for the characters? and what they're seeing on a character level. And that's the difference between saying, you know, this is a scene where something gets mended and you meet a newly sentient object. We're saying that this is a scene where the focus leaves the players altogether and we all take on, you know, voices of the opposition conspiring against us and we have a short scene of them discussing their evil plans. One of them is a different way to play the game, right? And one of them is just keeping your character as is and playing a normal scene, but just dealing with certain stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, the question came up early on in the playtest when we were like, all right, now it's time to come up with types of scenes where, you know, we ended up coming up with this this pilgrimage and procedure, but another player afterwards was like, I didn't know if you meant... uh, A dramatic monologue is a type of scene we should have. A montage. Mm -hmm. A fight sequence. And that's a good question. I mean, could we have chosen one type of scene we have is a pilgrimage? Another type is a dramatic monologue? (laughs) And in this world, you have a lot of dramatic monologues? To me, that feels exciting. It's, you know, when you're talking about changing the structure of how people play the game and how they talk at the table, it's demanding because that's kind of throwing out 
so many of the rules that you put together about how things work at the table and how people can talk and what they're allowed to do. But at the same time, it's exciting where it's like, in this kind of scene, you find a soundtrack, you hit the play button, and before the song ends, you have to have defeated somebody in battle. And <laughs> like, cool. It's, you know, it's called a battle hymn. And sometimes you want to play a battle hymn scene. That sounds amazing. But can that actually sit well with everything else that we're building into this game? All right. So then what are some of the challenges of this direction that we're trying to take where maybe the game has a few types of scenes that you can always do and included in those are X number of scene types that the players have come up with themselves in this GMless game. So everybody at the table is responsible for coming up with like something that has some sort of mechanical impact. And, you know, they're not designing the mechanics like we have to make it loose. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. One of the challenges is that we have to make the mechanics loose enough that the mechanics that we design apply to whatever the players end up coming up with. So something like, I, <laughs> I mean, what, what did we came up with? What did, what did we come up with? What would be the mechanical impact of these two, you know, of a procedure scene? Or is it just narrative? I feel like as a player, you want it to have a mechanical impact. You want it to, you know, change your character or the world or a relationship in some lasting way that's reflected in the mechanics. But if you're deciding that, you know, how can that possibly be balanced? So we have to essentially then go into the rules saying like, all right, you're going to come up with a title for what type of scene this is, what it looks like to do that thing, and the result will be always you gain a new friend. You get plus one to your next role because something has, you've learned new information. Like we have to like have the mechanics support like work into the idea that they are going to come up with. Like they have to each support each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. We don't... Because it can't be a player's job to say, as a result of this sentient scene, I get, I carry two forward to... Like it, it can't be the player's job to be designing the mechanics of the game. We have to put in a sort of a cushioning layer where the mechanics are abstracted into a concept that's easy to come up with. Like, say, say there's a certain mechanic around the idea of if your scene was successful. And so when you're making up this scene, you have to say part of what makes it a success. In the, the battle hymn scene, it's a success if you're, you know, standing victorious over a fallen enemy when the soundtrack ends. And then the mechanics have said what a success looks like in Questlandia too. Right. It says, and a success, if you, if you do manage to have a successful scene, then you can do this kind of resolution. You can choose from these mechanics or get this kind of reward. And likewise, it might say on a failure, you know, you impact or change a location on the map and draw a new trouble, uh, which could be something that's flexible enough to work in many different scene types that players come up with. Whatever we do is going to be putting some weird limits and 
you know, we really want to avoid the feeling of burdening players. It should feel, it should feel kind of joyful to make a scene where you can just delight in putting in something strange and something that strikes your fancy and it fits into the world and into the game and you can actually go in and play it. And it's like, man, I just had this weird idea at the table, but now I'm actually going to hit the soundtrack button and I'm going to hit play and we're going to do it. I think that's, maybe I'm biased as a person who designs games, but to me, having a little bit of a hand in the design of your scenes during the game sounds fantastic. It is really cool. Uh, another challenge is this idea of like giving the people who are sitting down at the table who are not going to be with us for guidance enough guidance to you know really know what makes a scene that's not too restrictive or too vague like if you come up with a scene type that's like playing the trumpet at breakfast this is a playing the trumpet at breakfast scene. Like, is it's that, that kind of world? Like, yeah. We're every, but it's like maybe that is actually something that works. Like, maybe we have you know this world of musicians who are driven really hard by their parents to be in the regal marching band, and mm-hmm. so like nobody can even connect as a family because you always have to just be playing the trumpet at breakfast. Like, maybe that's not too restrictive, but I don't know. Part of what would be necessary in a system like this. Because there's no way we could really, you know, train people to make perfect scenes for their group on the fly. It's just not feasible. But what we can do is build in the flexibility that players can change those scenes or improve them or ditch them and make something totally new easily. That they have lots of opportunities to swap these out and say like, oh, that one... That battle hymn was not working at all. Oh my God. Especially after he chose the 70 minute song for his scene. Like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, If there's room to refine them, to make it so it feels like a light thing where we have a scene, we can experiment with it. If it's not getting chosen because everybody's like, oh, that one turned out pretty, pretty unappealing. You know, it's the one where you have to put salt in your mouth as you play or whatever it's like nobody's picking it let's swap it out (laughs) yeah we're gonna do something better it's gonna be sugar (laughs) so we had gone into that play test you know thinking the plan was to actually try to play something that resembled a game of Questlandia. Yeah. Um, so we started, you know, we were like, okay, we already have Argyle. Let's not start from the beginning. Uh, we reminded everybody of what, you know, characters they'd selected. We did a little bit of uh, remembering what the world was. Then we went to jump in. We created these two scene types, but there were just like, there were so many questions and so like so many things that we hadn't really like we had left a lot of blanks and they yeah. were great questions, uh, but we did not end up ever playing because we got kind of bogged down in these questions like, well, do we pick a scene about trumpeting or is it more about the tone? Like, you know, am I supposed to say, you know, that this is like what type of are we in an Eastern fable? Is that the type of game that we're in? Well, that will determine the types of scenes that are available to us. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of questions. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of stuff we didn't have answers to, but a lot of very helpful questions to consider and getting to those answers. And those led us to creating a second draft of the scene frames 
we took the custom scenes that people made in the first session, and we created a rough set of rules and fleshed them out to integrate with those rules in a way that, you know, we imagined could be something similar to how these look in the finished version, knowing full well that, you know, the finished version will look nothing like this. We brought those to the table, and we said, okay, let's just dive in. You know, there's definitely going to be gaps about what's not clear. Let's play anyway, and just all agree to pretend like there's a finished rule system somewhere that, you know, we just all know by heart. No need to see it on paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that is what we did last night. And, I mean, there's still so much left to design, but I think... We did actually manage to each play a scene, and despite things, some things feeling weird or some things being like, okay, this is not something I want to carry into the future, it was fun. It was fun. It was definitely fun. And it was, you know, it, there was a connected story. And, you know, people did the procedure. Things were mended and became sentient. That yes. happened. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we mended a wall. And the wall began weeping. And, you know, it changed the whole course of the story. It was like, whoa. Oh, no. Poor guy. <laughs> it felt very Questlandia to have these bizarre scene styles link into the stories of the people living in the kingdom. And then, you know, actually just making their decisions around it and being like, okay, there's a weeping wall. What am I going to do about it? One thing that was really cool for me to see was, you know, as people, these, you know, the scenes felt a little bit like, okay, are we doing this right? This is awkward. We came up with this. Are we doing the right thing? But I was thinking back to a few weeks ago when everybody came up with these character archetypes at the table instead of the game giving them to them. Uh, like we came up with the queen and the puppeteer and the beast of burden and the tourist trappers. And like now... That's so far, like, it's canon now. Yeah, and then I'm just feeling like, like, oh, of course the rules are like that. You come up with the main, the main archetypes of this world, what people do. Hopefully the scene framing can get to that kind of place where it's like, yeah, of course you decide what kind of soundtracks you're going to play during scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Duh, it's Questlandia. It's yeah. just what you do. In that second playtest that we did, we also actually managed to dive into mechanics and like conflict resolution and what happens when you encounter a challenge in a scene. So I think that that is maybe what we're going to be talking a little bit about in our next episode. There's a lot to go over. It brought forward, you know, if the scenes felt promising, the mechanics of resolution to me felt like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we really did hack kind of hack something together and even the scene types need like a lot of work there's a lot of work ahead but at least it feels like there's some structure to that work now i can imagine a scene of sitting down with this scrappy game and refining it into something good so with that that leads us to your thoughts and questions so our last episode was about the worst ideas we've had so far, and people had a lot of thoughts and questions. Mm -hmm. I was so happy, because, you know, things had been kind of quiet. Yeah. I was like, nobody cares about moss liquors. I know. Nobody cares about collaboration, but 
This was like, it it stirred the pot. We floated the idea that that maybe the whole meta level was a mistake. (laughs) People didn't like that. No, it was really good. People were like, no, the junk poets, don't get rid of them. So that was great to hear from more than one person that like, that, that you believe in our ability to somehow make this weird like story within story meta plot thing work. Yeah. Your foolish faith is comforting. <laughs> so that felt good. Uh, I will say that it felt good to have a few people who emailed in favor of Team Three Ring Binder. I haven't read those emails. I, I, bra- I skimmed. I saw some nonsense. Right to and the I just junk closed folder. the window. Yeah. <laughs> the junk poet folder. <laughs> uh so that was really good and i felt like that was one place where we're sort of testing this public design process because who knows maybe without that feedback we would have been like f the junk poets mm-hmm. bye bye so if you have any ideas about scene framing <laughs> if you're hearing this and you're like oh no oh no uh, unbacked <laughs> no <laughs> That's terrible. No, no ideas allowed on this one. It's still two. These are two. They're like two. Totally ideas No ideas. Don't give us your ideas. Email them. I'm genuinely curious about what people think about this concept. I think it's exciting, even if it is full of unanswered questions. So if you have thoughts and questions, you can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com or follow us and tweet to us at designdocpod on Twitter. You can also follow us personally. I'm A Drawn Novel on Twitter. And I'm Han Bandit. The Design Doc intro-outro theme was created by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the OneShot Podcast Network. If you enjoyed Design Doc, visit oneshotpodcast.com where you'll find other great shows like Backstory. Backstory is an ongoing series of interviews with some of the most compelling voices in the RPG and LARP community. Designers, organizers, scholars, and other fascinating folks, join your host, Alex Roberts, for a deep dive into their current projects and visions for the future of role-playing. Check it out every other Thursday at oneshotpodcast.com. If you're liking what we do here, you're welcome to head over to Design Doc on iTunes and leave us a review. It'll help more people find the show, and it will fill us with determination. Determination. And it really does fill us with determination. You know, there's been this theme recently of people saying that the podcast is like the NPR of role-playing game podcasts. That fills me with determination. It, yeah. I don't know if this feeling is called determination, but it, it fills me with something. <laughs> so thank you for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes. <laughs>